0: Hello and welcome to this Idaho Reports podcast, Web Extra, for August 14th. I'm Melissa Davlin. This week, I sat down with Dr. David Pate, retired CEO of St. Luke's and current member of the Governor's Coronavirus Working Group, to discuss public policy considerations in the pandemic, public officials who don't believe science, and what concerns him most about the coming months. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Pate. Can you give us some insight into how the coronavirus working group is going so far?
1: Well, I think it's been going uh, very well. Uh, The uh, governor uh, appointed a small number of us uh, to this uh, work group. Uh, We've been meeting uh, anywhere, depending on what's going on, anywhere from once a week to twice a week. Uh, And of course, a number of times, uh, communication behind the scenes, um, but uh, Director Jepson, the director of the Department of Health and uh, Welfare for Idaho, uh, chairs that committee and has just done a great job. Uh, and uh, what I think is is really great about this work group is it has given us the opportunity to get together uh, with uh, some experts. And I I think that the governor and the director were brave enough to have uh, people like me on the uh, work group that, uh, you know, they know uh, I have lots of questions uh, and uh, I think people come to expect that. They know they're not always easy questions and they know I press them on things. But I think that's a real positive sign that they welcome that. And uh, what it does is it gives us an opportunity to do a couple of things. One is uh, look at uh, what is the state of the state uh, currently. So where are we? What are we seeing? What's happening? Uh, But the best thing and, and what's the hardest thing when you're in a crisis is to look ahead. Uh, because you're so focused on uh, what's going on. And of course, we've seen a lot of consequences of the fact that the federal government has not been looking far enough ahead, and so we're not well prepared. But we have the opportunity in the work group to really look ahead, talk about, okay, what kinds of issues are we likely to deal with? I mean, even back in uh, March and April, uh, we were discussing uh, so what are the things we need to think about as we come up on this fall with uh, flu season, respiratory virus season, schools open? Should schools be open? Should schools be closed? Um, uh, and and are we gonna see, at that time, we were talking about waves. Now we know there aren't waves. And, and so it just gives us a lot of opportunity to think ahead, challenge each other, see what are we not thinking about that we need to do, and uh, it's really helped us along the way because we've been able to give the governor um, some uh, highlight some things that might otherwise not come to his attention uh, and allow for very rapid action in Idaho. For example, um, I remember the day President Trump uh, first touted hydroxychloroquine on the TV. Uh, and fortunately, we were having a meeting later. And I went into the meeting and I said, we have got to do something right now w- with the Board of Pharmacy to uh, uh, prevent this because uh, physicians are going to be under incredible uh, pressure. And so uh, the governor took immediate action. And so it's, it's actually been very, very positive.
0: There are, of course, a lot of considerations in front of the state as we look at the pandemic. And it's not just public health, right? It's right. education. It is the economy. It's so many different factors. Do you get the sense that the priorities of either the governor or the Department of Health and Welfare have changed over the course of the past five months?
1: You know, I in the coronavirus work group, uh, we have the luxury of really focusing on the public health issues. Uh, uh, the governor has set up other groups, for example, on the economic recovery uh, and, and, and other aspects. Uh, so we can really focus our attention. Uh, you know, The governor has to take all of those things into consideration, which you've just mentioned. And so he gets input from our work group Uh, particularly about the pandemic and the public health issues, but you're right, then he has to take that information and balance it with all of these other um, public issues uh, that uh, this entails.
0: When when we're talking about the reopening of schools and reopening the economy and public health, we often see in public discourse that those issues are presented as conflicting, but yeah. in your opinion, do they have to be?
1: Well, I, I think they, I, I don't think they have to be. I don't think they always are. And I, I think sometimes we make them more conflicting than they need to be. So for example, uh, let's take a school opening. Uh, a very heated debate. <clears throat> well, uh, first of all, you know, what I try to do is I look at, well, where, where, what is it that we do agree on? And I think what we agree on is everybody. I haven't met somebody that says, gosh, I just hope we don't have schools open. I hope I can keep my kid at home. I hope I can uh, work from home while I'm trying to take care of my kid and they can pop in on my Zoom meetings and that kind of stuff. I, that, that's not what we're hearing. Everybody wants their kids back in school. The, what, what I think we've missed about the discussion is, what are we gonna look short-term or are we gonna look long-term? And what we've seen from other countries that open their school with much lower disease spread than we have in certain parts of Idaho is, yeah, you open it, but you close it in a month. Uh, so is that really what's going to help parents that want their kids in school for us to rush in, open it up, and then let's close the schools down? Or would it be a little better to take uh, some time on the front end, do this right, and hopefully we can keep the schools open? And and so I I think a lot of it gets caught up in the narrative.
0: When you talk about doing it right, what does that look like?
1: Well, I, I think... You know, one of the things that strikes me, uh, you know, there's there's been an attack on science and medicine and public health uh, that we've all seen play out. There also seems to be this underlying resistance to history, uh, and and I'm not talking about ancient or medieval history. I'm talking about the history from weeks or months ago. What we can do, we have the luxury in Idaho to look at. Other places and see what's happening and uh, you know we had this before our first case showed up we got to see what happened in Washington State California uh, some other places so we've had luxury to see what's happening somewhere else and take those lessons we're seeing what's happening with opening schools in areas of high disease transmission such as Georgia uh, and such as Florida and so forth and when I talk about opening it right uh, what I think is, is two things. Number one, and, and of course, this is going to be different in all different parts of Idaho, because there's some parts of Idaho I'm not really concerned about right now. They're doing pretty well. There are others that I'm very concerned about. And so the first question is, should the school open? And, and I think that's a question of what is the disease activity in the community? We know that in even in places with much lower disease transmission, uh, they've had outbreaks in schools. Now, we don't know, no no country that I'm aware of has opened schools with the kind of disease transmission that we have, say, in Ada and, and County uh, County Ada and Canyon counties. Um so we don't know what happens. But if you just apply common sense you have to imagine that more disease transmission is worse than less. And so so we have that. We have the second thing is that there's been a false negative, uh, which has been unfortunately driving some of the conversation. And, And the first one was kids don't get sick. I think we have definitively shown that is not correct. In fact, children of all ages get sick. It is true they get much less sick in general than adults, but they can get sick. The second argument that moved, well, kids don't transmit the virus. And and I think we now have proven that wrong definitively. So what I'm talking about is that first question, should we uh, uh, open, and that part of that question is uh, then leads to, what are we going to do to protect kids and protect uh, adults? Because we have to understand there's a lot about this virus we don't know. First of all, we do know that there are some teachers that are going to be high risk. We've got to take care of them. The things that we don't know is what are the long-term effects? And we're starting to see some very disturbing information coming back about, long-term effects of, of uh, COVID, and this is different. A lot of people want to compare this to flu. We, we There are some bad things that can happen to you from flu, but they don't typically happen months after you've recovered uh, from the flu. That's what we're starting to see with COVID, and we don't know the scope and we don't know what the implications are going to be. So. First question, should you open? And then the second question is, can you safely open? And the can you safely open is related to, do you have a very comprehensive, well-thought-out operational plan? Because what we're seeing across the country, kids are showing up to school day one infected. So what are you going to do? Who's gonna get quarantined? Who, you know, what do you do uh, uh, for, do you shut down the school? Do you shut down a classroom? Do you quarantine their teacher? I mean, there's a million questions to to answer. And and the question is, have they gone through methodically all the different things about the school and do they have a good operational plan?
0: I wanna go back to something you said about how we have (coughs) definitively seen now that kids do get sick and they can transmit it to adults. Not everybody believes the science behind that. And I'm including in that group, uh, people who sit on some public health boards around the state and not just Southwest Public Health District, although they've gotten the most media attention lately. But we've seen that among multiple board members and elected officials in other capacities. What do we do as a society when we have these, Fundamental misunderstandings of the science behind this among people who are pretty influential in these policy decisions. Yeah,
1: Well, we've got a lot of tough decisions we're going to have to make uh, in Idaho uh, because uh, As I've said many times, this won't be our last pandemic. And where the public health structure in Idaho may very well have worked at times when we don't have a public health emergency, what we've seen is it doesn't work in a public health uh, emergency. Uh, So uh, there are several things uh, that we can look at. One is, do we need to do a lot more education in our schools about public health issues and just educate Uh, kids about uh, public health issues. Uh, Another thing is we have to look at what is the purpose of these public health boards. Uh, Is it uh, their job to debate the science, uh, to uh, establish public health policy, or is it their uh, job to implement What is the public health science? Now you figure out how we apply it to the places we, we got to decide what we want those boards to do. Uh, I talked to one board member uh, to try to understand this better. And they said, you know, traditionally, uh, the role of the public health board has been administering the budgets, uh, which kind of made sense. You had elected leaders on there. Uh, But now here we are with a public health emergency. Now there's two things we could do. One is, uh, and this board member told me, actually, the boards don't need to be the ones to decide about public health orders, masking orders, and so forth. The executive director can do that. Um, Now, we have a situation where some executive directors are concerned about if they do that and their boards don't like it, maybe their boards will fire them. So we have to address, uh, you know, can they actually do their jobs? But one question is, where's the division of responsibility? Who has the responsibility for that? And let's empower that. If it is going to be the board and we are going to look to them to apply public health, then I think we have to relook at how those uh, boards are made up. It doesn't make sense to have ha- put somebody in charge of the public health of a district who doesn't believe in public health measures. Uh, it's fine that they don't believe in it. But don't be making decisions for large groups of patients or uh, people if you don't uh, believe in it. We also have to deal with, you know, back in 1970, uh, Idaho was a lot different. It may have made great sense back then to have a Southwest uh, health district and a central district health. It it doesn't make sense today based on how an infectious disease or contagious disease acts.
0: So those are, of course, long-term public policy changes that probably aren't gonna happen anytime soon. When we are looking at the amount of misinformation that's being spread on social media and the number of people who are taking that over the word of doctors and scientists and epidemiologists, Uh, Do you see anything that could change the trajectory of the public discourse surrounding things like masks and social distancing and the transmissibility of this disease? Or are people already entrenched in their ways at this point?
1: You know, I do think that the American public can change. And they've shown they've changed, even during the course of this pandemic. If you looked at... Uh, uh, surveying people back in April about masks and surveying them about masks today, there's a lot of increased acceptance and trust in wearing masks today. The other thing that happens, as you well know from social media and so forth, uh, you hear from the squeaky wheels. You hear from the people that are a little bit outrageous because that's who everybody reacts to and then that gets more uh, traction. And, uh, you know, we've seen a change in our culture to where um, when we have disagreements, we attack the person instead of uh, the, the facts or, or the application of those facts. And so a lot of people who actually do are informed and have common sense, they don't jump in because who wants to be uh, attacked? So, I, you know, I've my business has been running hospitals and health systems, um, for decades now. And what, as a leader, what I found is if I want people to change, there's a couple of very important things that I need to do. Number one, I need to communicate it. What is it I want them to do and why do I want them to do it? Why should they do it? Uh, and second, I have to role model the behavior. Uh, You know, just to go back, I mean, I certainly do beat up on Southwest District Health a lot, and I think it's deserved, but um, there's an example that they think, uh, well, aren't we great? We are encouraging everybody to wear masks while they sit there not wearing masks themselves. Uh, A a couple did. Uh, you, You have to role model these behaviors. It's just like with your kids. If you tell your kids, do this, but then you don't do it not a good chance they're going to adopt that behavior. And so we need leaders that will role model. We've never, in my recollection, we've never had a president so hostile to science and public health. And I think this, and then his whole administration that carried on this message has really hurt um, our efforts um, to, uh, get people to adopt. And, and so I do think leadership's important and it matters.
0: Had we had a stronger, more coordinated federal, uh, response at the beginning of this, how much do you think it would have changed the trajectory of the virus?
1: Dramatically, if it was really prompt, uh, uh yeah, I think, uh, no question, I think actually we could have uh, made this a uh, relatively not big event in the United States. Uh, So if you go back, uh, in late December, we started getting these reports out of Wuhan about an outbreak. Uh, And one of the things we've got to do and, and what people don't understand that's so important about public health and particularly things like the World Health Organization or the CDC, they both have their faults and there are things about both that need to change. But one thing that's good is they should be monitoring the world. We live in a global society and we are impacted by health threats anywhere and uh, they should be monitoring these things. We should have had eyes on that, hey, there was an outbreak of something unusual in Wuhan. Then, I think it was January 6th, I might be off a day or so, the Chinese scientists actually released the genome of this virus. That day, we knew, the world knew, we had a novel virus. What does a novel virus mean? A novel virus means it's one that has never circulated in the population before. And therefore, the assumption is everybody in the world is susceptible because nobody has been previously infected. That has to change the way we think and respond to these threats. Anytime you tell The president of the United States or any world leader that there is an outbreak with a novel organism organism somewhere in the world, then our global agreement should be shut that place down. Don't let anybody in and out or out unless there's good reason, and there are some good reasons, but shut that down, contain it until we understand what it is, how it's transmitted, how we can prevent other people from getting on. If you just look at the The hundreds of thousands of people that travel internationally all the the time, frequent day, daily, and the tens of thousands that are coming to the United States, if, you know, the the president implemented a a travel ban of sorts at the end of January, too late, too late. You've got to do it right away. And our whole world needs to do that. Nobody in the world did that uh, very well.
0: Now, this has been presented uh, in partisan terms in a lot of discussions in public, but what's interesting to me is that you were also a vocal critic of the Obama administration yes. under the efforts to get the Affordable Care Act passed and in the immediate aftermath, specifically the claims that it would lower health care costs for everybody. Is there something about health care policy discussions in which nuance gets completely thrown out.
1: You know, I do think there's something to that. Uh, healthcare is very complicated, and it's particularly complicated in the United States. We have one of the most complex uh, systems uh, in the world. Uh, so, yes, I think a lot of these nuances get lost, But uh, I, 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 and, and there is a tendency in our political system to uh to to look very differently at these things and to uh not to try to figure out okay what's the best of the republicans and what's the best of the democrats and let's figure out how does this work but it's like either i'm right and you're wrong or or vice versa and um and so you're right i'm an equal opportunity critic i i'm not i'm not attacking President Trump, because he's a Republican president, I would be attacking whoever is the president who managed the pandemic the way we have. And we've got to learn from this. But back to the Affordable Care Act, uh, you know, President Obama was saying this is going to lower health care costs and uh, all these promises to the people about how their premiums were going to go down and all. And I think we all know that didn't happen. And 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 I was saying it wouldn't happen. Not that there weren't a lot of good ideas in the Affordable Care Act, but but to think that what you can do is take a broken healthcare delivery system and now add tens of millions of people to it and somehow now you're going to save money it doesn't make sense it just and it hasn't played out and now we are getting ready because of this very partisan approach to healthcare and and where we are taking very very different sides we are now getting ready to just do the reverse
0: when we are in such a hyper-partisan time, do you think it's too late to change the tone of the conversation, whether it comes to healthcare costs or uh, you know, M- Medicaid expansion or coronavirus, or are, do we just have to figure out how to have these conversations in these hyper-political times?
1: For now, we have to decide how to have these conversations. I, I think that the solution, uh, and, and I'm not a political expert, but, but in my view, what's needed is we've, we as a people have to say, look, we're fed up. Uh, things are not getting better. Uh, things are not uh, getting worked out. Uh, we are just having um, uh, a constant disagreement, uh, constant attacks. Congress can't do anything. They're not fixing the problems that we care about. And so what we're going to do is if you're one of those hyper-partisans on either side, we're not gonna vote you in office. And if you are currently in office, we're gonna vote you out. We want people that will come together And yes, you have to run as a Democrat or run as a Republican, whatever, but once you're in office, you serve everybody, and what you need to understand is Republicans don't have a monopoly on all the good ideas, and Democrats don't. We have got to come together. We have got to find out where there is common ground, and let's build on this, and let's start fixing the problems that are hurting the American people.
0: You know, when we look at the virus impacts in Idaho, we are seeing that it's playing out as it is in a lot of parts of the country in which different populations are affected differently. We're seeing a disproportionate effect on Idaho's Latino community, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about, this isn't unique to the coronavirus. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how there were already factors at play that set this situation up?
1: Yeah. We have known about healthcare disparities for a very long time. The health system that the United States has embraced in of itself perpetuates uh, these uh, inequities. Uh, We have a system that we decided uh, we don't think as a country, we don't think everybody should have healthcare coverage. Uh, we think, uh, in large part, um, uh, health care coverage ought to be uh, tied to employment. Uh, we don't require employers to offer health care in all situations, and I'm talking about historically. Uh, and so, uh, so we have a system where there are the haves and the have-nots in our country. And uh, you have a situation with minorities. Uh, That they typically face a a number of issues. Uh, They may be lower income. That means they may not be able to afford medications and all. They may live in areas with decreased access to healthcare providers. And our fee for service uh, reimbursement system, which I have written extensively about, uh, perpetuates uh, not serving these underserved communities, but actually uh, putting up health care in areas where uh, people are more affluent and can pay for services. And so um, we have people that have lower education and may not understand um, how to best improve their health. We have a situation where we have people in jobs that may put themselves at risk, like you tend to have more of the minorities and lower income in these meatpacking plants and other things where we're, we're spreading disease. Uh, and we have higher uh, incidences of, of crime. We have higher incidences of a lot of chronic diseases uh, like high blood pressure. Uh, and what what you can look at is the end effects of high blood pressure. If you're insured and more well-to-do, typically, you are more likely to have your blood pressure under control. If you're not insured, you're you're lower income, you're typically more likely not to have your blood pressure controlled. And guess what? If your blood pressure is not controlled, then we see increased strokes, increased kidney failure, increased heart disease. And these are exactly what we see in these disadvantaged communities.
0: And to be clear, this uh, the social determinants that we're talking about with healthcare don't just affect Latinos or American mm-hmm. Indians. They also affect white people with yes. lower education. You see those same things where yes. there are uh, higher incidence of uh, chronic disease and low education and lower income. Um, and that kind of plays into this discussion that rural Idaho is absolutely not immune to coronavirus effects.
1: No, they're not. And uh, I, I mentioned before, uh, we're not learning from history. Uh, we should see this coming. And let me just tell everybody in in rural Idaho that hasn't been seeing the coronavirus, you're next. Okay. So let's let's look at how this started. A communicable disease is very much more likely to manifest itself and be uh, out of control in a metropolitan area with high living density, mass transportation, a lot of crowding, those kind of things. That's going to promote a, um, a infectious disease. And that's what we saw early on. And then you saw things like you saw the state of Florida. And they were saying, ah, see, we have escaped this when New York was having it. And now look, they're the hot spot. And um, Louisiana, early on, uh, had a, a big outbreak from uh, Mardi Gras. Uh, now, uh, they got it under control. Now they've, uh, blossomed back up again in case and guess where it's hit in Louisiana, the rural areas. So there is no one that is completely safe from this virus. It is going to start in the highest population centers, but it's going to move everywhere else.
0: You know, just to wrap up this conversation, when you look ahead over the next six months, what are you most afraid of?
1: Right now, I'm most afraid of schools, uh, you know, so I, I think we have to be very, very c- careful and cautious um, uh, coming up uh, after opening of schools. The next thing I'm most afraid of is flu and cold season. Uh, now. What we do is we watch the Southern Hemisphere to see what's happening, because they have their flu season before we do, and it's often a good predictor for us of what we're going to see. They actually had a very mild flu season for several reasons. One is uh, a lot of countries in the Southern Hemisphere reported uh, people getting flu vaccine was up uh, 25 40%. And so more people got vaccinated than usual. I hope we'll see that here. I hope people will go uh, and get their flu shots, but of course you and I know there's a lot of resistance to vaccines, but getting a flu shot will be hugely helpful to everybody. Second, uh, there does seem to be a pretty good match between the flu vaccine and the circulating strands. And then the third thing was the flu season for the Southern Hemisphere came right on top of their big surge in cases. So they were already doing the things to protect themselves, staying at home when they could, avoiding large gatherings, wearing masks, etc. So what we found, and actually a bit surprisingly, because we weren't sure this would happen for influenza, there's some important differences, but actually what happened is it seemed to decrease the transmission of quite a few number of uh, contagious illnesses. They had less strep throat, they had less influenza, a lot of things. So. The difference for us is uh, we've had this lag time and with it, people have grown tired. Uh, they don't want to isolate. They want to get back in groups. They don't want to wear masks. So I don't know that we're going to have the same good experience with flu that the Southern hemisphere did. I hope so. I want people to take this seriously and get ready. What I'm worried about if they don't <clears throat> is uh, Melissa, you're a mom. Uh, a year ago, uh, it, although I'm not sure your child's over a year, but, uh, and certainly not school year, but a year ago, if you, if your kid was sick, had the sniffles, a cough, you kept your kid home for a couple of days, they got better. And then you sent them back to school. That's not what's going to happen this year. Every kid that gets a cough, sniffles, sore throat, fever, uh, every parent's going to be where my kids got COVID. And it's going to be a big, big rush on the healthcare providers, and I don't think we're prepared for that rush. And then we're already having problems with testing. This is going to aggravate that, and I think we're going to have real problems with not being able to get timely tests, and that's going to be really challenging for everybody. So that's my uh, my my next fear.
0: Well, Dr. David Pate, thank you so much for your insights. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to the Idaho Reports podcast on your favorite podcast player.